I'm Joshua Kagey from The Christian Citizen, and this is episode 18 of Justice, Mercy, Faith. In this episode, the Reverend Deborah Jackson reads her essay, Black History and the Negro Problem, offering that if we cannot teach slavery, which was irrefutably core to our history, how will we ever teach or face this country's racist past? And if we cannot face our racism, how will we ever dismantle white privilege and the persistent beliefs that stem from it? The Reverend David Gregg also joins the podcast this week with his reading, Collective Ephesi, Working with a Common Purpose for the Good of All. And finally, we're joined by regular Christian citizen contributor, Alisa Vasquez, with her story on the intentional multicultural ministry she's experienced in the Dominican Republic. The Reverend Deborah Jackson is the Director of Operations for All Girls Allowed, a faith-based nonprofit that restores life, value, and dignity by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, building schools, churches, and women's centers, and mobilizing churches and partners for global impact. She was previously the Director of Lifelong Learning at Yale Divinity School. Her newly released book, Meant for Good, Fundamentals of Womanist Leadership is published by our partners at Judson Press and available for purchase at judsonpress.com or wherever you buy books. Here she is with her essay, Black History and the Negro Problem. In 1908, the American Journal of Sociology published an article by humanist Charlotte Perkins Gilman entitled, A Suggestion on the Negro Problem. In the article, Gilman argued that people of African descent, who had been forcibly brought to this country, were largely incapable of progressing to the level of whites. The problem, she noted, was that he is here. We can't get rid of him. It's all our fault. He does not suit us as he is. What can we do to improve him? Her idea was to enlist a body of people below a certain grade of citizenship, creating an enforced labor system of African-Americans who were trained and suited for agriculture or manual labor without the strain of personal initiative and responsibility to which so many have proved unequal. Gilman argued that her plan of organized labor created self-sufficiency and increased social evolution while benefiting the larger society. On the heels of such offensive assertions, it was no surprise that noted historian and scholar Carter G. Woodson helped to establish the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History in 1915. The organization dedicated itself to researching and promoting the achievements of black Americans and people of African descent. By 1926, the organization instituted Negro History Week, which was to be observed during the second week of February to coincide with the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. By 1970, the celebration of Black History was extended to the entire month of February. The original premise of the celebration was unchanged. The observance recognized the accomplishments, historical achievements, and contributions of African Americans. While the debate continues to rage as to whether Black History should be observed for a week, a month, a year, or not at all, That is not my question. My question is whether our Black History Month observances function to overcome the permanence and persistence 
of the Negro problem. Think about what happens during Black History Month. Too often, we trot out our great notables, Martin Luther King Jr., Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, W.E.B. Du Bois, Shirley Chisholm, and Barack Obama, to name a few, as if to say, see, we have some good ones too. Special efforts are made to showcase those most accomplished to seemingly counteract the negative perceptions and stereotypes of the race in general. During Black History Month, we will also cite the litany of black inventors. For example, we will hear about Louis Latimer, who invented the carbon light bulb filament, Granville Woods, who invented the induction telegraph and electrical devices for trains, Madam C.J. Walker, the first black female millionaire known for her hair care products, or Benjamin Banneker, a surveyor and author of almanacs who created a clock that struck on the hour. Again, this who's who listing is offered almost as an insistence that African-Americans made notable contributions in the history of this country. These are undeniable facts, but will they change the beliefs of those who continue to regard African-Americans as problematic and subordinate? I think not. It is not lost on Americans of African descent that this country was built on the backs of an indentured and enslaved labor force. Indigenous people suffered what was effectively genocide, leaving the progeny of those who were enslaved or indentured to tell the story. But rather than promoting the stories of a few good men or women, why not tell the dehumanizing stories like Gilman's A Suggestion on the Negro Problem? Why not? Because it creates discomfort. The Southern Poverty Law Center chides our school systems for not properly teaching the significance of slavery, as only 8% of high school seniors surveyed were able to identify slavery as the central cause of the Civil War. If we cannot teach slavery, which was irrefutably core to our history, how will we ever teach or face this country's racist past? And if we cannot face our racism, how will we ever dismantle white privilege and the persistent beliefs that stem from it? Gilman suggested in 1908 that those who do not progress and are degenerating into a social burden or actual criminals should be the responsibility of the state. In 2020, we seemingly endorse that belief as evidenced by the criminal justice system and the mass incarceration of African-Americans. In 2014, African-Americans constituted 13% of the nation's population, but represented 2.3 million people, or 34% of the 6.8 million correctional population. 
Furthermore, Gilman suggested that through Americanization, foreigners would realize increased social evolution, an opinion that boldly discounted the value of the immigrant's culture of origin. Is this not our belief when we insist that immigrants assimilate, abandoning their culture, language, and norms to be American? Alternatively, we could follow the example of Beltrami County, Minnesota, whose citizens voted against any refugee resettlement in their county. Such sentiments and actions speak to the real problem, which is our inability as a nation to confront and deal with the discriminatory atrocities of this country, those in the past and those that continue in the present. Until we do, we cannot effectively celebrate what should be a source of tremendous pride, the rich diversity of the United States of America. However, if we could ever overcome that obstacle, it would no longer be necessary to recognize Black History Month, Women's History Month, Indigenous Peoples Month, or any other specially defined observance. Instead, it would all be regarded as American history. The Reverend David Gregg is Executive Minister of American Baptist Churches of Metro Chicago. Here he is with his essay, Collective Ephesi, working with a common purpose for the good of all. I have the privilege of representing the American Baptist Churches of Metro Chicago and its churches at a number of different organizations. One of those is the Council of Religious Leaders of Metropolitan Chicago. This group comprises leaders and representatives from a wide variety of religious traditions across the city. The Roman Catholic and Episcopalian dioceses, the African American Episcopal Conference, several councils of rabbis, several communions of Eastern Orthodox Christians, and various societies of Buddhists, Quakers, Sikhs, Muslims, and even Baptists. The Council of Religious Leaders provides opportunities for us to meet with various civic leaders and voices. Last spring, for example, we met with the author Alex Kotlowitz for a reading from his new book, An American Summer. As that selection implies, the group is concerned about violence, especially gun violence, and its victims and perpetrators. So it was not surprising that they hosted the new interim superintendent of the Chicago Police Department, Charlie Beck. Superintendent Beck was urgent from the very start. It is very important that we talk, were the first words of his presentation. And his next sobering words had to do with protecting communities of faith from the violent threat of fringe ideologies. Responding to a question about attacks on synagogues, as well as to recent incidents in churches, mosques, and other communities of faith, he spoke of this work under the heading of counter-terrorism. This was a bracing reminder. I tend to attribute these attacks to hateful loners and metastasized internet trolls. 
This term, counterterrorism, reminded me of the systematic reinforcement such violence gets from the institutions of evil, the structures of domestic terrorism that birth it and support it. Much of Superintendent Beck's presentation had to do with the violence young men, for the most part, perpetrate in the streets. He attributed this violence to two main factors, feelings of disenfranchisement and the easy availability of firearms. He spoke of the need for an empathetic compassion towards the violent, an understanding of the contexts and causes that helps us support them to make different choices and helps to predict and prevent future occurrences. He certainly captured the sense of the fed-upness so many of us feel. We're done with this, he said. Done with young men killing one another over nothing. Done with collateral damage. Done with the over-policing it creates. At the heart of his presentation, the superintendent emphasized his twin priorities of building trust in the police department and increasing its effectiveness. These things are interdependent. When we do not trust the police, they struggle to do their job. When they do their jobs poorly or irresponsibly, we further lose trust. No one will help an investigation if the police department fails to clear cases or to protect informants. Conversely, as the police department becomes more effective in serving the community, they will begin to gain trust. As they gain trust, they gain community help in becoming still more effective. These are the two things behind everything I do, he says. Building the trust between Chicago and the police department that has been broken and making the police department more effective at what it does. I struggle to know how to interpret situations like this. I try to take people at face value, at least until they give me reason to believe I should not. I am generally impressed by people who say intelligent things in a straightforward manner, and Superintendent Beck did both. At the same time, I've seen enough of politicians and their appointees to know not to be too credulous. Beck has a record of some demonstrated success in reduction of gun violence and increasing the clearance of homicide rates in in Los Angeles, where he served as police superintendent for nearly a decade. Of course, we will know the tree brought by its fruits. Superintendent Beck said one thing, however, that we cannot deny the truth of, something we certainly must take to heart. He talked about something he called collective efficacy, a collective will and belief that we can only succeed together, that the solution to our problems is something we hold collectively. And he said that the community needs to see itself as the solution to violence rather than its victim. In a moment of real eloquence, he said we need to become a city that is not divided by where you're more likely to get shot, but a city that is united by a desire to make a difference. A city, a region, with a sense of common purpose for the sake of the common good. Of course, from our point of view, that vision of collective efficacy is what we refer to as the peaceable kingdom. 
where weapons are reforged into useful tools and nations study war no more. Our efficacy comes as we understand and engage the systems of evil. It includes confronting the government and the police when they fail to behave in trustworthy and effective ways, and it includes working with them when they succeed. We can all pray and work for their success, even as we pray and work for the protection of those threatened with violence, even as we pray and work for those who are tempted to commit violence themselves. For such as we, when we work and pray in this way, when we mourn, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, when we make peace, such as we thus become children of God. Elisa Vasquez is founder of You Belong LLC, which helps connect individuals to communities. Here she is reading her essay, Intentional Multicultural Ministry. Waking up to the sound of roosters crowing, birds chirping, merengue and reggaeton music blasting in the hustle and bustle of the city of Santiago in the Dominican Republic is an exciting way to start a new year. For the next two months, I will be immersed in a country that is not my own, though the culture feels like home. I'm already growing spiritual roots in this vibrant, tight-knit community and the multi-ethnic church here. Despite the lack of running water and the anxiety of trying to navigate a new city, God is showing me that His grace is sufficient in every circumstance, no matter the country I'm in or the challenges I face. At the beginning of January, I took a risk and moved to the DR without knowing exactly what I would be doing, but I knew God was doing something special in this community, and I wanted to learn and be a part of it. Six months prior, I visited the church, Iglesia Comunidad Multicultural, ICM, led by a Haitian pastor and his Dominican wife, Stanley and Amatfi Philippe. Their story is one of hope, inspiration, and resilience. God gave them a vision to build a flourishing, multi-ethnic, multicultural church despite the contentious history and the generational racism that underscores interactions between both Haitians and Dominicans. The island of Hispaniola, which is shared by Haiti and the Dominican Republic, has a long history of social and racial tension. One example is the 1937 Parisian Massacre, when Dominican dictator Rafael Trujillo, who wore makeup to lighten his skin and was obsessed with whitening the predominantly mixed-race island, ordered the massacre of Haitians in border areas, where many worked cultivating sugar. To determine who was Haitian, soldiers with machetes asked dark-skinned people to say the word perejil, which is Spanish for parsley. For Creole-speaking Haitians, the R sound was difficult to pronounce, and a slip of the tongue became a death sentence. Estimates of the massacre ranged from 10,000 to 25,000 people killed over the course of only a few weeks. Knowing the history of the two countries and understanding that many Haitians face institutional and personal racism today provides a glimpse of how much a church like ICM is a work of God in this city. With worship in three different languages, Spanish, English, and Haitian Creole, poor and affluent members, locals and visitors, 
all participating by serving their immediate community. Iglesia Comunidad Multicultural is a vibrant and unique place in the Dominican Republic. Serving includes volunteering at the free preschool, there is no public preschool available to these children, offering evening meals to children, some of whom intentionally dress up for what appears to be their only meal of the day, free English classes for teenagers, discipleship courses, and weekly life groups. Although located in any underserved community, this church remains generous by supporting 12 other churches in Haiti and doing global missions in Cuba. There is a heart of generosity and a God-inspired community deep in the DNA of this church. Since planting the church, the leaders of ICM, Stanley and Amalfi Philippe, have taken the vision that God gave them and are executing it with intentionality and excellence. I have seen firsthand their excellence in leadership and discipleship, and it takes a certain amount and type of intentionality to incorporate various cultures into a church community. I would submit that every church has its own personal brand of intentionality, from the inner city of Philadelphia to the bipartisan church in Washington, D.C., and even to the multicultural church in an underserved community in Santiago. Intentionality is the medium one uses to administer their calling and God-given vision. Are we being intentional with the specific vision that God has given us? As I continue my journey in Santiago, I look forward to learning more from this vibrant faith-filled community, even as I witness God's grace in all the spaces and moments where life seems nearly impossible to navigate. As I am also navigating my own purpose and intentions of why I am here, I will continue to serve, immerse myself in a different country, and learn from what God is already doing here in the Dominican Republic. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. Thank you to this week's guests, the Reverend Dr. Deborah Jackson, the Reverend David Gregg, and Elisa Vasquez. Our theme music is Believable Too by Peter Sandberg. The Christian Citizen is edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. The show, website, and newsletter are produced by myself, Joshua Kagi. Stories are copy edited by Hannah Estefanos. Our art director is Danny Ellison. The Christian Citizen Editorial Board is Dr. Jeffrey Hagre, Laura Alden, Susan Gottschall, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, the Reverend Sarah Strosel-Kegi, the Reverend Salvador Oriana, the Reverend Dr. Marilyn Turner Triplett, and Reverend Cassandra Carcuff williams And our advisors are Sherilyn Crow, the Reverend Kimberly Payton Jones, the Reverend Stephen D. Martin, the Reverend Marvin A. McMickle, and the Reverend Harold Dean. To learn more about The Christian Citizen, visit our website, christiancitizen.us. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Thanks for listening.